The scripture reading tonight will be from uh, the book of Judges, chapter 17. Judges, chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. It says, There was a man um, from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from you, and on which you put a curse, even saying it in my ears, Here is the silver with me. I took it. And his mother said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my son. So when he had returned the eleven hundred shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a molded image. Now, therefore, I will return it to you. Thus he returned the silver to his mother. Then his mother took two hundred shekels of silver and gave them to the silversmith. And he made it into a carved image and a molded image. And they were in the house of Micah. The man Micah had a shrine and made an ephod and household idols. And he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Good evening. It's good to be together once again this Lord's Day. We are thankful for the presence of many who are with us tonight. We hope that you will take out your Bibles and to the book of Judges in the 17th chapter is where we will begin our study. And we will be concluding our series from the book of Judges this evening by looking at some of the events here at the close of the book of Judges and then trying to draw some applications for us in our lives. As we have come to see, the book of Judges records a time in Israel's history where this was the chosen people of God. And the judges were appointed to help lead the children of Israel out of several captivities that they had. Because of their unfaithfulness, because they had turned away from God, God allowed enemy nations and tribes to come and take them. And they were chosen God chose, or these people they chose to turn back to God eventually. They would ask for God to appoint a ruler for them, someone to deliver them, someone to save them. And as you can tell by the end of the book of Judges, things have rapidly deteriorated. In Judges chapter 17 and the opening verses there picture the very formal beginning of idolatry in the land. And you come to Judges chapter 17 and in verse 6, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. As some of the tribes begin to have conflict, Later on in Judges chapter 18 and verse 1, in those days there was no king of Israel. You continue on in the, these last few chapters. In chapter 19 in verse 1, which begins a very sad story that probably many of us would be surprised to even find in the Bible. In Judges chapter 19, it says in verse 1, Now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah. And there's a couple of things that 
are worth our attention there. First, that we see this repeated idea that there was no king in Israel. We'll draw some remarks here in a moment. But here is a Levite. Here is one of the ones from the chosen tribe of Levi that was supposed to be very involved in the ritual and religious aspects of the law. These were supposed to be the ones who knew the law and performed many of those sacrifices and be involved in the sacrifices. And yet here is this one who takes this woman. And as you continue to read throughout the chapter, it's very sad what happens. But it ends up where in verse 29 that this woman's life is taken. And it says in verse 29, when he entered his house, he took a knife and laid hold of his concubine and cut her in twelve pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. Such a time of lawlessness and utter disregard for God's Word. In Judges chapter 21, as there's conflict again between the tribes of Israel, the very last verse of the book closes with this statement, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I think as we have tried to examine the book of Judges, we have seen this coming. We have seen where Israel has been faithless because of the compromises that they made. They turned against God very quickly on what might have seemed like small, very small kinds of steps away from what God said, and yet, here they were. They had turned completely and utterly into something that God had never designed for humanity, much less His people who were under His covenant. They have sunk so far that they don't seem to act like anything special. They certainly are not giving themselves to the law that they said that they would follow and the covenant and the commands and the requirements of the law. They were violating the first and second commandments of the Ten Commandments. They were involved in all sorts of other immorality, ready to go to war and fight and kill for unjust causes and sinful reasons. This is such a sad time here in Israel's history. And the book here reminds us that there is no king. I don't think this is the author's theological comments about how it's right or wrong to have a king. I don't think having a king would have necessarily made anything better. Certainly could have made things worse. But historically speaking, there is no king ruling over the nation of Israel. 
And then this shows us that they should have understood that God was their king. Remember, after Gideon had been so successful in his campaign, in Gideon with the 300 men in Judges chapter 8, that the people of Israel, they were ready to make Gideon their king. In Judges chapter 8 and in verse 22, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son. For you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. They are asking him to establish a dynasty there. Make a king. Give us a king. Become our first king and then we'll submit ourselves to you and to your son and to your son's son. And Gideon, for whatever faults he might have had, and he had some, especially here as you continue reading, he definitely flirts with idolatrous practices, but he gets this point right, at least. In verse 23, But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Gideon understood that principle, that God is their king. But you see that they were already rejecting God's rule as king. And later they would become more emphatic about that in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Perhaps you'll remember in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when this was still during the time of the judges, when... Samuel is judge and he has his sons who are also serving as judges and Samuel sort of makes a circuit around Israel and his sons are utterly corrupt. And the people see that and they make that the impetus for their reasoning to say, let's go to this kingship model. In 1 Samuel chapter 8 and in verse Six, it says, but the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. They wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted to be like everyone else. And what the book of Judges shows us, they were already acting like everyone else. <laughs> they weren't acting as the people of God. They had turned against God. A king was not going to solve that problem for them. And so there is nothing immoral about having an earthly king. Or God would not have allowed Israel to have one. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, the writer in Moses, as he is speaking to the children of Israel, he tells them what would have been expected and demanded of a king. God made provision for a future king in Israel. But these statements that you get here at the end of the book of Judges and going into 1 Samuel, what you see is that they are pointing to a larger picture 
that everyone did what was right in their own sight. They were utterly lawless. There was no regard for authority. There was no respect for what was right and proper. They did not regard God. They were more concerned about being like all the other nations. And this goes directly to the very beginning of the book of Judges. When they were supposed to go in and utterly destroy the Canaanite tribes that remained in the land. And you remember that they did not. You remember that they compromised at that very first step. We could take the time, but we're not going to this evening, but we could go back to the book of Deuteronomy and look at several of Moses' comments about how he warned them that you need to go in and take the land completely and utterly or else you will be brought into the behavior and the idolatry and all of the social religious norms of the people that we're trying to stamp out, who God was using Israel to judge those evil, wicked, idolatrous nations. People who would worship to the God of Molech and burn their babies and their children. This is what Israel is now turning into. Israel is adopting the same practices like all the other nations and tribes around them. A king was not going to solve their problem. King may or may not make matters worse. If they had a godly king, then perhaps they might be better off. And you just have to read throughout the books of first and second kings or first and second chronicles of the history of God's people and how most of the kings that are recorded in those books are evil. They don't help the situation. They just make matters worse. There was no king. When you think about the description of what all takes place in the book of Judges, there's compromise that began in Judges chapters 1 and 2. You'll remember the words... In Judges chapter 2 and in verse 1, it says, Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up out of, the, out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? From the outset, there was compromise. And notice the angel of the Lord, when he says that 
God has decreed that I'm going to be faithful to my covenant. If things don't turn out, if you don't receive the blessing that you're expecting, it's not going to be because God failed. It's going to be because you turned away. And I just can't help but think of that woman in Judges chapter 19 who is cut in 12 pieces by a Levite. That's how it began with compromise and it ends with utter disregard for the sanctity of life. And sometimes we only use that idea and that phraseology and sanctity of life when we're ready to fight people who agree with abortion. We need to talk about it when it comes to a murderer as well. There's sanctity in life. The idolatry that began in Judges chapter 2, in verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. The immorality in Judges chapter 19, we've already alluded to it. In Judges chapter 19, in Judges chapter 19 and in verse 22, talking about this woman who had been taken as the Levite's concubine, in verse 22, it says, While they were celebrating, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded the house, pounding the door, and they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man saying, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may have relations with him. Then the man, the owner of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my fellows, please do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not commit this act of folly. Here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Please let me bring them out that you may ravish them and do to them whatever you wish. But do not commit such an act of folly against this man. But the men would not listen to him, so the man seized his concubine and brought her out to them. And they raped her and abused her all night until morning, then let her go at the approach of dawn. This is what the people of God had become. And an incident very much like this is found in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 19. In Genesis, the 19th chapter, you'll remember that that God had appeared to Abraham and he had told him that he was going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God sent two angels to the city to search out the city. And Lot, he gives them quarter. And the men of the city come searching for those angels. It says in Genesis chapter 19 and in verse 5, And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out 
to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had not had relations with a man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. I can only imagine, and I don't like imagining it, but I can only imagine whenever our morality is so subject and so subjective that we'll say, no, don't harm this guest, but here, give, I'll give you my daughters. And Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. The subjectivity of the morality, it's so grotesque. The book of Judges is not, it does not end in a good way. It ends with depravity. And you can see in these statements that we have looked at tonight, such as in Judges chapter 17 and in verse 6, every man did what was right in his own eyes. There is no basis for law and order. Everyone just did what was right in their own perspective. And if you think that is bad, and you continue reading in the opening chapters of 1 Samuel, and we get the beautiful story of Hannah as the opening of that. But then it quickly turns to looking at Eli, who was a priest, and his sons are described in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. So now you have these worthless men who do not know God who are pretending to be religious leaders. That's something that I think needs to resonate with us when we consider what was going on here. That we are seeing Israel plummeting. And this is just a few generations removed from the Exodus. That this is not far removed from the generation that Moses spoke his last words to in the book of Deuteronomy as they were about to go and take the promised land. They have completely forgotten God. And it began with small steps of compromise to great corruption and immorality in the land. 
In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, in Romans the first chapter, the Apostle Paul describes the state of humanity. In Romans chapter 1, if you will begin reading with me in verse 18. In Romans chapter 1 and in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And Paul is saying that the wrath of God is revealed against all evil, all unrighteousness, all manner of wickedness. Even though there was evidence for God, they did not accept that evidence. There were people who actually deliberately would suppress the truth to only promote unrighteous behavior. So he goes on in verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. I think sometimes we have this mistaken idea, and this is perhaps just because of the social changes that have undergone over the millennia, that we think that the problem with idolatry was that they had this wooden carved image of an animal or they had this stone or metal object that they would bow and worship to. We, we say, well, aha, that's idolatry, and that's wrong, that's immoral. And yes, God certainly did not want that. But if that's all that we think idolatry was, then we are sadly mistaken. Idolatry is what you're reading about at the end of the book of Judges. It's all this immorality, all the subjectivity, all the turning away from doing what God has said. You continue on in Romans 1, and what Paul is doing, he's describing what we would probably say is human nature, or at least the human state, the human condition, I think he's really describing idolatry. And he says in verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their 
Women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do them, do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. You just see that downward spiral. Whenever we give up who God is, when we abandon the thought of God, That's what happens. We give up the very foundation of what is good, what is moral, what is proper, what is right. When we give that up, everything crumbles. Everything falls apart. And you know what? We get an insight into that every single day, don't we? You turn on the news, you pick up your phone, you see the crumbling and deteriorating effect of a life without God as King. There's no respect for life. There's no respect for other people. There's utter disregard for what is good and right and proper. And we can talk about all the sins that may be committed. We can talk about the sin of homosexuality. We can talk about the problems of transgenderism and all the murder and things that take place. All the grotesque immorality that is out there. We can talk about all of that. And we need to point out those things as immoral and as wrong. But we also need to recognize the first step in that problem. That they abandoned God. They abandoned God. And they turned away from His rule. A rejection of God's authority requires us to eventually compromise His holiness and His truth. And we end up compromising ourselves and we become unholy. Think about some of the traits of someone who is really evil. I will give you the definition of them that we're defining here in a moment, but someone with a grandiose self, 
or sense of self-importance. Someone who is preoccupied with fantasies of power and success. Belief that they are someone special and unique. A sense of entitlement. Someone who is arrogant, rude, and engages in abusive behavior. Those are the traits as defined by an article in Psychology Today of Narcissism. And we can attach a psychological name for that. I'm not opposed to that. But first of all, let's acknowledge what it is. It's sin. And it is someone who has utterly rejected the basis of authority. And we live in a generation that we speak about narcissistic behaviors and tendencies. And we need to call it what it is, that it's arrogance before God. It's rebellion from His authority. And it's simply just doing what we want to do. Where we have an attitude where you cannot tell me that I am wrong. I can just do whatever I want to do. Now, there is no absolute truth, which is so funny because that's an absolute statement. What I want us to see is that as we have been studying the book of Judges, this has huge impacts about who we are as a society, as a people. That we're not that different overall as a whole, as a country, as a nation, as a world filled with immorality. The book of Judges gives us a glimpse into life without God as our King. When everyone does what is right in their own eyes. It's a very sad state of affairs that we see. Where there's no rule of law. There's no law keeper. There's no justice. There's no righteousness. There's no enforcement of law. No respect for those in authority. There's no one to uphold the law. To show us what we ought to do. There's no reward for compliance with the law. The book of Judges shows us that Israel has fallen so far from what God intended for them to be. Israel was supposed to be the covenant people of God. This chosen nation. They were supposed to be special. They were supposed to be different. Not because they were better than everyone else, but because they were supposed to be giving their heart and their life in subjection to God.
In Acts, the 13th chapter, the Apostle Paul, as he was speaking to the synagogue in the city of Antioch of Pisidia, in Acts chapter 13 and in verse 47, he quotes from Isaiah the prophet and he says, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. That was what God had intended for Israel to be. They were supposed to be this city set on a hill. They were supposed to be this great nation, not because of their own greatness, but because they were supposed to be reflecting the light of God. They were supposed to be showing the salvation that God offered. I don't think Israel ever fully became what they were supposed to be. Sure, you have glimpses of, of that from certain individuals. You read in Hebrews chapter 11 of some of those individuals. Like David, for instance. Or Gideon. Jephthah. Even Samson. You read about people like Noah and Moses. Or Abraham and Sarah. And what we begin to quickly see is that you line up those few names that just mentioned from off the top of my head that that's a very short list compared to all of the people that lived in Israel or all the people that have ever lived on this globe. That should indicate something to us. That as the people of God, we must stand firm. We cannot compromise. We cannot afford to compromise. It doesn't mean we'll be perfect all the time. But we cannot afford to adopt the practices and the thoughts of the sinful, godless world around us. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are supposed to be lights to the world. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and in verse 13, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in, who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Our responsibility as disciples of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are to be the light. 
in a dark world. We're to be different. We can't compromise. We can't become like the world. As Jesus would continue in the sermon here in Matthew chapter 6, in Matthew chapter 6 and in verse 22, He says, The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. And if you compromise the light that is in you, then you become overwhelmed by the darkness. And it gradually takes root and takes hold. Israel was the covenant people of God, and we need to look, we need to learn from their lessons. The mistakes that they made, the sins that they committed. And while we may not be able to change the course of a nation, we can be the light of Christ to our neighbors, to our family to our friends, to those who are around us, to those who are within our sphere of influence that we interact with on a daily basis. We can let them see Christ through us. We can share with them the love and the mercy of God. Because if there is something that we need to learn from Israel, is that when there is no king, it is a time without law, it's a time without order. It's a time of ungodliness and unrighteousness. But we as the people of God, what we recognize is the one absolute truth that everyone must recognize. And everyone will eventually recognize this, either freely while they live here on this earth or in eternity. In Philippians chapter 2, in Philippians chapter 2, speaking about Jesus Christ, and in verse 9, after, because of His obedience and going to the cross, it says, For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The question is, are you going to be ready to make that confession and submit to Jesus Christ as your King today, freely, voluntarily, to enjoy the hope of eternal life and the salvation of God? Or will you do it when it's everlastingly too late? We have a King. Jesus Christ is our King. 
He is a King who loves you, who gave His life for you. And He wants you to be saved. He wants you to become His child. If you are willing to make the confession that you believe in Him, that you're ready to give your heart and your life and your allegiance to Him, you can be ready for that great day. A day of judgment when we will all stand before Christ. In a time when there was no king, no law, and no order, everyone did what was right in their sight. We are called to be different. Jesus Christ offers redemption and salvation. This evening, if you need to become a Christian, if you need to be baptized into Christ, we'll be happy to help you become a child of God. And maybe if you have already made that decision to be His child, yet you have been unfaithful to Him, and you have sin in your life, will you not come back to the Lord? We want to help you. We want to encourage you. We'll pray with you and pray for you. Whatever we can do to help you, would you let it be known as we stand and as we sing?